I'd also like to thank each one of you for your presence here and for your participation in our assembly this morning. You know, there's many false doctrines and teachings that have their beginnings in the book of Revelation. If you take a book of prophecy, a book that's written in figurative language, and you place a literal interpretation on some items and a figurative on others, you don't do that in a consistent way. Well, you can make up almost any kind of theory about what is being taught. And I believe that that's the case with a lot of the end-time theories that we hear around us in religion today. When we decide what we want to happen and we go to the Bible and try to prove that, that's called agenda-driven Bible study. And we need to be very careful that we do not do that, especially when it comes to books of prophecy and books that are written in figurative language. This morning as we go through our study, we're going to have three verses on the lower left of the screen. The top one will be the last passage that we've talked about. The middle one will be the one that is under consideration. And then the lower one will be the upcoming passage that we're going to go to next. If you want to use your Bible today and turn to these verses and follow along, I would encourage you to do that. We will have the text up on the screen concerning these issues, and there will be notes later upon a request for those that would like to have a full set of the Scriptures. In 1970, there was a book written called The Late Great Planet Earth. This was the first apocalyptic Christian prophecy book that was published by a secular publisher. This book sold 28 million copies by 1990. The premise of this book was a rapture of the church and a literal reign of Christ on this earth later on for a thousand years. What has happened most recently is the left behind phenomenon. Thus far since the year 2000, there's been 16 books written. There's been about 80 million copies of those books sold. There's been five movies produced the latest one in 2016. But more than that, there are six additional, six to eight additional movies planned for the future, result, revolving around this idea of a future kingdom and the things that are going to happen at the end times when this earth comes to a close. Basing a whole doctrine on figurative prophetic language without regard to plain, straightforward teaching of the Scripture is very dangerous, and it's backwards to how we should approach God's Word. We've talked a lot about the authority of God's Word, how it is God-breathed, and we need to have a process to go to His Word and find truth. And the process is that we take Scriptures in their context, we take all of the information on any given subject. We let the Bible be its own def, uh, dictionary and commentary to explain what certain words mean. And we need to use this technique whatever the subject is. And there's a lot of doctrinal subjects that people hear about, they read about, they see them in the movies, and they accept on the surface whatever they're told without going to God's Word and laying those things alongside of God's Word. This morning we want to look at future kingdom versus present kingdom, and we want to begin in Revelations, the first chapter, verse number 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Notice the premise of the book of Revelations. John said it was going to be concerning things that must shortly come to pass. For years, people have taken the book of Revelation and they've tried to project it out into the future thousands and thousands of years and predict what's going to happen at the end of the world. That's not the context that we read here that this book is based on. In addition to that, notice that this book was written, it, it was signified. The word signified is from the Greek word semaino 
which means written in signs. In other words, the book is written in symbols. It was written for a specific purpose in symbols, so others that read it that might be persecuting the church would not understand the meaning, but those in the church who were under persecuted uh, persecution would, would be encouraged. So it's a book that was written about things that would shortly come to pass, and it was a book written in figurative language. A word, a word of warning for all of us. Anytime we come across a philosophy based on books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelations, there's other books of prophecy in the Word of God, we need to make sure to take whatever our understanding is of those books back to the straightforward teaching of God's Word. And when we fail in doing that, we will not understand the truth that we need to understand. And some people might say, well, why does it make a difference what happens at the end of the world? It makes a difference because we need to follow the doctrine that's taught in God's Word. For one thing, this future kingdom idea offers a second chance to people. There's going to be a so-called rapture of the church where everybody that's right with Christ is going to just disappear and go to heaven. At that point, people who are not right with God will have a second chance to get their life right. Besides that, people are in the wrong mode of thinking and the meditation about God's Word when they spend all their time on events in the Middle East and all of these other things that are presented in these books and movies that do not have a correlation to God's Word. It is important for our own faith for the faith of our families, for the faith of those that we teach around us, that we understand the, the doctrines that we find in God's Word. And that would apply to this doctrine of the end times. I fear that most in religion today have lost their zeal to take what they hear back to the Word of God. And that's a grave mistake that we cannot make. So we want to look at this idea of future kingdom versus present kingdom. We will discuss these two different doctrines. Both of these teachings cannot be true because they contradict each other in many areas. So we want to take the Bible and we want to decide which one of these doctrines passes the criteria of being most consistent with the whole Bible. Remember, we're going to take all of the information about any given subject and we're going to put it together and our understanding must be one that brings consistency to the Scriptures that we have in God's Word. When we accept things just on the surface without taking them back to God's Word, we are susceptible to be led by the blind. Do you remember what Christ said? He said, the blind shall lead the blind and both shall fall into the ditch. We should not follow that process. We should be more like the Bereans who received commendation because they took what they heard religiously, they had a ready mind, and they took it back to the Word of God and they looked to make sure that what was being taught was found in God's Word. And that's what we need to do with any doctrinal subject regarding the church and regarding serving God and Christ in this Christian age. Before we have some specific verses about these different doctrines, I want to give an overview. I want to explain some illustrations here. We're going to start with this bold white line. This doctrine, before we go to that, is referred to as premillennialism. You may not have heard that word, but it, it indicates pre or before. Millennial means a thousand, and ism is a doctrine or belief. So this doctrine of premillennialism is what is being promoted in all of these books and movies, and it has gained a lot of ground in even so-called conservative churches. Even people within the Church of Christ are accepting some of these doctrines because they haven't taken them back and compared them with the Word of God. So here is the illustration, a, a, a bold white line. This represents a timeline. The top one is going to be this idea of a future kingdom. It's going to begin with the rapture because that's the first step in the stage of this theory of premillennialism. 
We're going to shorten that word up to pre-meal for our purposes this morning. So this pre-meal doctrine starts with this rapture, and it ends on the very, very right side with eternity. And just imagine if you go off of this screen to the right that you're going into the vast time of eternity or the lack of time where there will be no time and where we will be there forever and forever. Some of the features of this theory, as we begin to look at it in more detail, is that there will be a rapture of the church. Now, if you read different men's writings about this doctrine of pre-mill, you're going to see some slight differences in the way some of this is laid out. But every one of them speaks about a rapture of the church, and they speak about a literal reigning of Christ on the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And some of the details may be moved around a little bit, but this is the most consistent one that I've been able to read about. And as I said, it begins with a, a rapture of the church. Upon this rapture, those that are right with God will be taken into heaven Christ will meet them in the clouds. You may have seen the bumper sticker that says, this car will be unmanned in case of the rapture. This is envisioned as a dangerous time for those that are left behind because the drivers of vehicles will suddenly disappear, the pilots in the airplanes, the, the doctors and nurses in the operating room, if, if they're a part of this church rapture, they'll all just disappear. This would cause a lot of chaos and a lot of problems for those that are left behind. But when these of the church arise in he uh, arrive in heaven, this theory teaches that Christ will judge them. They will remain in heaven with Christ for the next phase. Meanwhile, back on earth, those that are left behind will endure a great tribulation. This is made up of two, three and a half year periods of time. It is stated that the 144,000 will be sealed, that they will become preachers of the gospel during this time, that there will be many hardships placed upon those that follow Christ during this time period. Many will be killed because they believe in Christ. Another part of this theory is the Antichrist will come to power. He will take over the UN. He will become a one-world government power, the leader of that. There will be a new Babylon, which will be the seat of this government that arises in the country of Iraq. And all of this is stated to happen during this seven-year period. At the end of this seven-year period, it is stated that there will be a battle of Armageddon, that it'll be a world war where this Antichrist is defeating everyone. And at that time, Christ will have a second coming. He will come back to the earth he will defeat this Antichrist. He will set up his throne in the city of Jerusalem. At the same time that Christ comes again, it is stated that there will be a resurrection of the tribulation and the Old Testament saints. The kingdom will be established at that future time. Christ will be on his throne here on this earth, and that will be for exactly a thousand years. During this thousand-year reign, Satan will be bound, and it is stated by this doctrine that there will be complete peace and no sin during this thousand-year reign of Christ. At the close of this thousand-year period, Christ will have another ascension into heaven. When he returns to heaven, Satan will be loosed for a little season. During this last little season, there will be great evil, and it will dominate the earth. Finally, after this little season, Christ will return for the final time. The earth will be destroyed. The evil or the wicked of all ages will be judged at this time in what is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Terms associated with this idea such as rapture, second ascension, third coming of Christ, none of these phrases are found anywhere in Scripture. Most of this doctrine is based on Revelations, the 20th chapter. And I'd like for us to turn to that chapter and read it together this morning to get an idea of the basis of where these future kingdom theories come from. 
We'll begin in Revelations 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God in Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So if you read this on the surface, we read the thousand year phrase many times through this we read about Satan being bound we read about a resurrection and so if we read this on the surface and we don't know a lot of the rest of the scriptures that are taught in a straightforward manner in the New Testament then we might accept this theory that we have just presented by this illustration at the top of this of the screen so now let's think about a present kingdom. The idea that the Bible teaches that the kingdom is already present and we're a part of that kingdom. We're going to use the same format for a timeline. The big difference is the start of this timeline is in a far different place. The start of this timeline will be with the ascension of Christ that we read about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. Again, it will lead us over to the right hand side into eternity. But this timeline represents from A.D. 33 when Christ ascended all the way over till Christ is to, comes again and the world ends. So how does this lay out? We said Acts 1 verse 9, the Bible says that Christ ascended into the heavens. You remember that He was crucified, that He was buried, His soul went to Hades, His body was in the tomb for three days. He was resurrected. After his resurrection, he went, and he was seen of over 500 witnesses at one time. He went to his apostles, and he worked with them for a period of time following his resurrection. And Acts 1 gives us a description of the last things that he said to his apostles, and it gives us a description of him being lifted up into the clouds. Here it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So Christ was lifted up, and he went into heaven. What did he tell the apostles to do right before he ascended? We read this in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that we could read this morning where Christ talked with his apostles before he ever was crucified. And he told them that he would send a comforter back to them, that he would send the Holy Spirit, and it would guide them into all things that they needed. And now in these last words, he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until these events unfold. And these are facts. These are straightforward facts of the Bible that record the history of what happened. So let's go now to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 2. And we will see indeed that the Bible records that these events took place after Christ went and was in heaven. It says there, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so these events 
went just as Christ had promised his apostles. They were there, they waited. This was the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after Christ had been resurrected, and the Holy Spirit came, and it filled them, and immediately following this, the apostles gathered all of those people together that day, and Peter stood up, and he began to speak the first gospel sermon that was ever taught. I will tell you this morning that all of the scriptures of the Bible in a consistent way lead to the fact that the kingdom started in Acts chapter 2. We can read some language in Acts 2 verse 29 through 36. Here Peter, in the midst of this first gospel sermon, he makes references to some things that we know mean that the kingdom started this day. First he talks about the fact that both David was both dead and buried. You know why he said that? Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, there was a prophecy of this coming kingdom of Christ. And it was prophesied that David would be dead and buried and in the grave when this kingdom came about. And so as Peter begins to establish for these Jews that this is the day that the kingdom is established, he uses this language. He speaks of Christ sitting on the throne in verse 30. He speaks of Christ being by the right hand of God exalted. And then he comes down to the end of verse 36, and he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter was connecting this back to a kingdom prophecy in 2 Samuel. And he uses all of this language that indicates to us that Christ's kingdom came into power at this time. How long will this kingdom last? For an indefinite period of time, it will last until Christ returns. And the Bible tells us that no man knows when Christ will return. We can identify when the kingdom started, A.D. 33, but no man knows when this kingdom will end. And yet, time after time, people who develop these theories, these sensationalistic ideas that they write about in books and movies, they indicate that they know when the earth is going to come to an end. Hal Lindsey wrote in that book, Great, Late Great Planet Earth, that it would happen in the 80s. The 80s came and went, and it didn't happen. And now these movies that we're having now, they're going to be a fresh set of six to eight movies, and they're all going to be talking about these things that are happening in the future, like men can understand how all of this is going to unfold. When the Bible says no man knows when time will end. We know that the church will exist until Christ comes again. We know that Satan is bound by God to a degree for those that will come into the church. Because here we have the blood of Christ to cleanse us. Here we have all the blessings of Christ. We're given promises that we will not be tempted above that that we are able. But with, with every temptation be given a way of escape. We have protection from Satan within the church today. And we need to exalt and magnify the church and its importance rather than saying like these people that talk about a future kingdom, well, Christ came and He intended to establish His kingdom, but He couldn't do it because of the evil Jews, so He established the church instead. That's not honoring the redemptive plan of God that we read about in the Bible. It is stated in Acts 20 that Christ died to purchase the church. The church is important. God set out a redemptive plan before this world was created. And the center institution of that plan is the church. And we read in the Bible of, of its prediction. And we read of a, its establishment. And we need to understand the blessings that we have within the church today. If we're looking out yonder for some future kingdom, some earthly reign of Christ where He's going to defeat all of the earthly enemies, then we're looking for the wrong thing. Do you know that Herod had that same idea? Is the reason he sent forth a massacre to kill all the young men or young babies at that time? He was afraid this Messiah, Christ, would come and establish an earthly kingdom and put Him out of His place. 
Do you know that the Jews who look back to the reign of David throughout the time of Christ, many of them, they were looking back, thinking that Christ, when He came, was going to establish an earthly kingdom, that He was going to defeat the Roman Empire and all of the enemies. That's what their expectation was, and it was incorrect, as we will see going forward. We don't need to make the same mistake. We need to emphasize the things that are important that we read about in God's Word. When Christ comes again, this world is going to be burned up, and everything that we know is going to come to an end. And the Bible only speaks of a second coming of Christ. And at that second coming, the Bible teaches that all will be resurrected. If you'll look up top, there's a resurrection of the the righteous in two different places before the thousand-year reign, and then all the wicked are resurrected at the end of that earthly thousand-year reign. That's where these plans contradict, and both of them cannot be true. There will be a judgment of all at the end of the world. Sinners will be sent to the lake of fire, and those that are righteous will be sent to heaven. This is the same basic timeline explaining the, the teachings of a present kingdom. And so again, we want to lay these alongside some other straightforward verses that we find in God's Word, and we want to see which one of these most consistently lays out with all of the Scriptures in the Bible. And I think you can already tell because we started this timeline with Scriptures, with historic facts. This other one up on top starts in some future time at a rapture of the church. So we don't have any historical facts to back up any of that theory of a future kingdom. There's a lot of Old Testament prophecy concerning a coming kingdom. We don't have time to cover that today, but in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he said the kingdom would be established during the Roman Empire. A.D. 33 was during the reign of the Roman Empire. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, said it would be while David was in his grave. If you'll notice, there's an Old Testament resurrection on that top diagram that happens before the kingdom is established. That does not go along with the idea that David would be in his grave. And there's many more verses that we could cite, but we want to come to the New Testament, as I said, and look at some very straightforward statements about the kingdom of God, and we want to see if we can tell which one of these ideas is correct. We begin with John the Baptist very early in the pages of the New Testament in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist came and he said, The kingdom of heaven is imminent. It's going to be established in short order. Not only did John the Baptist say this, but Christ used the very same words. This time we read from Mark 1, 14 and 15. In verse 15, 14 identifies the kingdom. Verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. We read Again, where it is even more specifically stated concerning the timeline. This is Mark 9, verse 1. Christ said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So Christ said some of the people that were standing and listening to Him would still be alive when this kingdom was established. Either we have people that are over 2,000 years old with us today, or the kingdom of God has already been established. All of these verses fit consistently with the lower illustration. A.D. 33, about 33 years after Christ was born. So when he spoke about this being in, to be put in place or established in short time, then all of that would fit. Would it fit that there would be 2,000 years, that there would be a little a time of tribulation before these statements of Christ would come to truth? Let's look at Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. 
the words of Christ, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ was a Jew. Christ lived under the old law. His time on this earth was a transition period to ready His kingdom to be established once He endured His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And Christ talked here about establishing His church. But notice also He used the word kingdom to describe this institution. One verse church, the other verse kingdom. And Christ made a promise. He said, I will build my church. Do we think because the Jews were evil, Christ backed up on that promise? Do we take the church and the kingdom to be two different things when Christ uses the same terms to describe what He was to build? He said the gates of hell or Hades cannot prevent me. He would come back, be resurrected, and He would establish His church. These verses magnify the church they show it of great importance and they show us that the church and the kingdom are one and the same and that it would be established shortly after these promises were made. In fact, there are four different terms in scriptures that are used to describe this kingdom. It's referred to as the church. It's referred to as the kingdom. It's referred to as the house of God. And it is referred to as the body. Anytime we read these terms in reference to what Christ came to purchase and build, these are going to be speaking about the same thing. And so when we come to Acts 2 and we begin to see the establishment of this institution, we are not mixed up or confused about whether the kingdom exists now or whether it's going to come at some future time. It is interesting to note that all of the verses in the Bible before Acts chapter 2 speak of the kingdom coming at a future time. You go back to the prophecies, you go back to these statements of John the Baptist and Christ, and all of these are looking at it as something in the future. But then when we pass Acts chapter 2, and what we noted earlier, where, Christ, where Peter preached that first gospel sermon, then all of the verses in Scripture speak of the kingdom and the church as being in existence. Let's look at Acts 2, verse 47. This is the last verse of chapter 2, after the church had been established that day. The Bible says that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. How can we be added to something that doesn't exist? The church and the kingdom being the same institution, it came into being at this time. Look at Colossians 1 verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Here's one that references specifically the kingdom. This is Paul writing to Christians at Colossae, and he includes himself. And he says, we have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. How could Paul and these Christians be a part of a kingdom that's going to be established after the rapture and when Christ comes again and sits on his throne in Jerusalem? These verses fit, if we look at the bottom illustration, they will not fit if we try to use the theories of men. Let's go to the book of Revelations again itself. Revelations 1 and verse number 9. Here's the same author who wrote Revelations 20 that we read earlier, and he's going to make a statement here in verse 9. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. This is in the early verses of Revelations where John is laying out what he's going to do. We read earlier in verse 1 that it was about things that would shortly come to pass, that it was figurative language. And now John describes himself as being in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. 
I do not believe that he would write and say he was in something that he would then go into his figurative teaching and later on say that it hasn't happened as of yet. What does the New Testament teach about the nature of this kingdom that we're talking about this morning? In Luke 17, verse 20 to 21, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Think about Christ coming and destroying all his enemies in a physical way. That's what this theory of premillennialism states, that the kingdom will be established when Christ comes back and annihilates all of his enemies. Could that be observed? Would that be an event of observation? Christ said that his kingdom would not be an event of observation. He said it would be within you. Christ never intended to establish an earthly kingdom. It was to be a spiritual kingdom from the very start. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus was speaking to Pilate during his trial. Notice these words, My kingdom is not of this world. How can we misunderstand the terms that Christ used here? He said, If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from thence or from hence. The kingdom will not be of this world. It will be a spiritual kingdom. It is in existence today, and when we are saved by obeying the gospel, God adds us into that kingdom. And we need to realize that and count the blessings that we are receiving by being a part of this spiritual kingdom. Paul said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Do we fight a physical war against the soldiers of this earth? That's not our battle. Our battle is against spiritual wickedness in high places. What does the New Testament teach about Christ's kingship? I'd like for you to notice these words carefully. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. If you'll notice in the present kingdom illustration, Christ is in heaven. He's ruling over his kingdom right now. Our test is not after Christ comes back to the earth to destroy the earth. Our test is right now. And what Christ will do when he comes back to the earth, he will deliver this kingdom back to the Father. We have multiple parables taught in the Gospels regarding this very thing. One of them is in Luke 19, verses 12 through 15. And it talks about a nobleman, Christ, went into a far country, heaven, to receive for himself a kingdom. That's exactly what happened. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit back. He received his kingdom, and he is now ruling over that kingdom. When he returns, he will punish those who are not treating his kingdom with respect and honoring him as king. These are the teachings about Christ's kingship. Christ's second coming, as it is described in straightforward language, in God's Word. I want you to know that there's a body of almost 20 scriptures that are very straightforward that talk about the second coming of Christ. All of these different terms are used and you can take these verses and read all of them and you can establish that this is talking about the same time frame. I want to use as an example the last day and I want to read John 5 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. This is the time frame that we're talking about. The hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Does it say the righteous heard his voice and came up and the wicked didn't? 
It says, All that were in the grave heard his voice. Verse 29, And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Within an hour, everyone, good and evil, are going to be resurrected and they're going to be judged. How could we separate the judgment of the righteous way over here on this side and the judgment of the wicked way over on this side and say that that happened in the same hour? You see, it's impossible to do that. And these verses are written in such a way that we know they are straightforward and teaching the truth of God. Not only that, we have all of these verses about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the resurrection, and I want you to notice that each one is used in the singular. It doesn't talk about multiple comings of Christ or multiple days of the Lord or multiple last days or multiple days of judgment. A judgment of the righteous over here and a judgment of the wicked over here. Nowhere in all of these Scriptures, can we read anything like that? All of these Scriptures contradict the idea of a future kingdom. This is not one or two, two verses. This is a whole body of teachings that we find in the New Testament. All of these descriptions point to the same day. The judgment will be at the end, Matthew 13. The judgment will be at the last day, John 12. The coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord are the same, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. The judgment will be at His coming, Matthew 25. The destruction of the earth will be at His coming. Can we look at this whole body of verses and information that were given in God's Word and have a confusion about what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Hopefully, if you are not sure about this, you will get a copy of these notes and you'll go and read these verses. Because we build our faith, we build our understanding of truth by going back to God's Word and seeing the facts and the truth that are given there. So someone might say, well, if Revelations 20 is not talking about a rapture, and a literal reigning of Christ, what is it speaking to? I want to go back and, and look at this. We don't have time to go in detail, but I want you to notice some things about this passage. There are some items mentioned in verse 1, a key, a bottomless pit, and a great chain. And you will notice that those that render this a future kingdom they make those figurative. They don't talk about a literal chain or a literal binding of Satan. They make that figurative. But then in the very next verse where it mentions a thousand years, all of a sudden they want to make that literal. Why would we make some of these terms figurative and some of them literal? This term thousand is used repeatedly here. What does the word thousand mean? How is it used in other places in the Bible? Well, we, ha we can use the Bible to define this. We can go to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9 where God made a covenant with the children of Israel and He said that He would love them and keep the commandments. He taught them to love and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. What about thousand one thousand and one? Would they be okay? You see, these words were used to mention an indefinite period of time, an indefinite number, a perfect number, or a complete number. We see it used again in Psalms 50 and verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. So as there are more than a thousand hills on this earth, we know that there are, and we know that the cattle on all hills belong to, Christ, to God. And so we would not use this term if we look at it in the Bible sense in a specific way. And if we go back to Revelations chapter 20, we will begin to see that this is all figurative language. Revelations 20 would have to teach the following to prove the pre-mill doctrine. It would have to teach the second coming of Christ, which is not mentioned in those verses. It would have to mention a bodily resurrection of the saints, 
which it does not mention in, the, in that text. It would have to mention a literal throne of David if we were to believe that that was the teaching of this section of Scripture. And it would have to place Christ on earth. If you go back and look closely, none of these things are stated in that passage. The facts are that Revelations 20 teach a figurative message for those that are in the church today. What happens when we begin to add, we read between the lines and we put what we want it to say so it will meet a criteria. We want to change God to be what we want Him to be rather than changing ourselves to be what He has taught us through the truth of the Scripture. We need to be very careful about adding to specifically the book of Revelations, because this verse says if we add to that, God will add the plagues that are written about in this book. The fact is, the book of Revelations teaches the final victory of Christ and those that will follow after Him. That's the broad context of the book of Revelations. The specific context is the persecution that the Christians were enduring at this time under the Roman Empire. And it was written to encourage those Christians to persevere because they would ultimately be victorious. Revelations chapter 20 is a kingdom passage which speaks in figurative language of what Christians have enjoyed in the church from the beginning. It mentions a resurrection there. It's speaking figuratively. A resurrection that happens when we obey the gospel and we rise to walk in newness of life. That's a blessing that we have in the kingdom right now. That's not talking about a literal, physical resurrection later to be a part of Christ's earthly kingdom. We have to be, again, very careful that we use the context, that we use the information given in God's Word, and that we stay consistent with that. This is about the church from its beginning and by extension what we presently enjoy today as being members of the kingdom of God. I want to spend just a second as we conclude our thoughts this morning to answer this question. This is one of the confusions that's brought about by this idea of a future kingdom. That the Jews, them physically, as a nation of people are going to go back to Jerusalem and they're still the selected people of God, even today in the Christian age, that the Jews, their natural, from Abraham being their father and being a part of that family, that they still have a special standing with God. I want us to think about these verses, Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all ye are one in Christ Jesus. There does not remain a physical nation or a physical race of people that are God's preferred people. Since Christ came, He took the old law out of the way and nailed it to the cross, and He opened it up to everyone on this earth. And those that obey the gospel and come into the kingdom of God, those are His selected people, not a physical nation. But this is one thing that a lot of Christians today, they're watching all of the activities in the Middle East because they believe that the Jews have to defeat the Palestinians and acquire that old site of the temple before Christ can come again, before the church can be raptured. And they believe that the Jews hold some key to that, those that are in the physical family of Abraham. What does the Bible say in Matthew 27, 25? The Jews, the hierarchy of that people said, let the blood of Christ be on us and on our children. Many of the common Jews came into the church and they thereby would be the selected people of God. But the hierarchy of the Jews refused to accept Christ and many Jews today still refuse to accept Him. In Matthew 23, Christ said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house 
is left desolate. Your house is left unto you desolate. And then you go on down to verse 2 of Matthew 24, and you see that there was a prophecy that the temple in Jerusalem would be torn down. This was talking about a destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. This happened, and that city was totally wiped out, and the Bible teaches that that was retribution for the Jews who would not accept Christ as their Savior. Paul wrote about it in Romans 11, For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. The Bible says God did not spare those Jews of the natural family, and he said you need to beware or he may not spare you either. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou wilt continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. There's no other name named among heaven whereby we can be saved other than the beautiful, precious name of Jesus Christ. And to think with all of the, the principles that we know about that Christ came and delivered, completely fulfilled the old law and set His law into place, that there would still be a way for those who will not accept Christ to be a part of God's favored people. This simply is not taught in God's Word. Galatians 3 verse 29, If you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here is the simple truth. If we belong to Christ, if we're in His kingdom today, if we're following His will, if we're walking in the light, then we're God's selected people. We are Abraham's seed spiritually. Remember, the kingdom is not a physical kingdom, but the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and we are Abraham's seed, and we are God's Israel of today when we obey and come to Christ. I hope as we've considered this information today that we can answer the question, which one of these is most consistent with the whole Bible? And it would be that our present kingdom is in existence and we need to be a part of it. Are you ready for Christ's return? When He comes, there's not going to be any second chances. We're going to have to be right with God at that point because after that, there's going to be a great judgment day and we will stand before God and we will answer for the way that we have lived our lives. I pray that you will get ready today. If you've not obeyed the gospel, we would encourage you to come forward this morning to be seated here on the front, and we will assist you in being baptized into Christ. If you're not right with Christ, if you're separated from Him, you would like to have the prayers of the church as His child, we would invite you to come also as we stand and sing the song of invitation.